Developing machine learning models is not easy. From the perspective of the machine learning researcher, there is the iterative process of tuning hyperparameters and selecting relevant features. From the perspective of the operations engineer, there's the handoff from development to production and the management of GPU clusters to parallelize model training. In the last five years, machine learning has become easier to use thanks to point solutions. TensorFlow, cloud provider tools, Spark, Jupyter Notebooks. But every company works differently, and there are few hard and fast rules for the workflows around machine learning operations. Determined AI is a platform that provides a means for collaborating around data preparation, model development and training, and model deployment. Neil Conway is a co-founder of Determined, and he joins the show to discuss the challenges around machine learning operations and what he's built with Determined. I want to mention that we are looking for writers. If you are interested in writing for Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at Software Engineering Daily. And personally, I'm making some investments. If you are a developer who's building a developer tools company or something that's closely related to software engineering, you can also send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd be curious to see what you're building. And thanks for listening. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Your company is built around the continuous iteration of machine learning. You have exploration and iteration, the hyperparameter search, and model training. Describe this continuous iteration of machine learning in more detail. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think one thing that differentiates machine learning when you're building an application that involves machine learning from traditional software development is that... You know, when we're building traditional software, we have a definition of what correctness looks like, and we have a specification or something like that, and we're trying to build, you know, we're trying to write down a bunch of rules, software code that meets that specification. When we're doing machine learning, on the other hand, what we're actually doing is often searching through a space of possible solutions, and in some cases, having the computer help us explore that space, rather than writing down all the rules ourselves, or sort of searching over large bodies of possible rule sets, and we might encode those rules using using, you know, a neural network or some other kind of structure. But, you know, as the developer, we're sort of orchestrating this search and kind of supervising it. So that's just inherently a more of an experimental process, more of an iterative process, where you might start with one data set or data represented a certain way and try to find, you know, given that data set, what kind of models, what kinds of rules am I able to, does the computer produce? And then iterate on that many times and explore different parameters, different ways to structure the rule sets, different kinds of data. So it's inherently kind of, I would say, a much more iterative process than maybe the traditional software development tends to be. Okay. And in practice, the bottleneck that I hear about most often is You've got a data scientist that's working with a notebook, a Jupyter notebook, and then you've got these machine learning engineers that need to productionize these models, and you know you need to take this work that this data scientist is doing ad hoc, and you need to productionize it. We've discussed this ad nauseum on the show, but this handoff between the data scientist and the machine learning engineer, it seems iconic of general frictions that appear in machine learning workflows. Can you tell me about what makes this handoff difficult and more generally, what are the other frictions around machine learning development that you've seen? Yeah, that's a great question. So specifically on the handoff from the kind of model development 
team or the model development process through to the deployment process. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sources of friction there. And I think part of the reason why is that the you know, first of all, there's a lot of moving pieces. There's maybe many different models. You might be deploying in a different environments. You might be deploying on the edge or on a web service. Those pieces also tend to be the technology that you're actually deploying. A lot of those APIs, models, interfaces are still moving pieces. So even something as simple as taking a machine learning model that you've trained, serializing it to a file, and then deserializing it back into something that you can use in memory for either further training or for inference, you would think that that would really be table stakes. And you know, pretty much all frameworks provide a way to do that. But doing that in a way that preserves all the information of a, of a trained model, including some of the custom extensions and custom layers that certain frameworks allow you to do, the state of your optimizers, you know, really making that even that kind of relatively basic operation, that can still, doing that correctly can still, is not something that always happens out of the box and it can require some additional code on the part of the user. So I think, you know, those are at least two factors and that like the APIs are relatively, are moving pretty quickly. I think another factor is just that it's, you know, often the set of people who do the machine learning, the actual operating the production service and the set of people who develop the actual model are two different groups of people in many cases. That's not model that all organizations use. But in just that handoff, the interface between those two teams, I think, is something that is just ripe for potentially for miscommunication or for, you know, one team might have one set of requirements and another team might have a totally different set of requirements. One thing we see, for example, is at model development time, the team developing the model might optimize for maximizing accuracy. So, building the best model that kind of solves the problem that you're trying to solve with the highest degree of accuracy. They'll train that model typically on on data center GPUs with you know very fast storage, and they'll get to a model that, that is effective. But then when it comes time to actually deploy that model in, in production, either on an edge device or on a web service, that's a very different environment. You might not have access to any GPUs, or, or maybe they'll be embedded GPUs. And there might be a latency budget or a, or a power budget or some other kind of constraint that might not even have been incorporated at model development time. So that kind of deployment team then has to think about, okay, you know, we have this model that is very accurate, but extremely slow, maybe very memory intensive, and we're running it on a different class of hardware than it was initially trained on. We need to apply a set of kind of compression techniques or model simplification techniques to improve its runtime performance at the expense of making it less accurate. And that's an example of where you know, you have two different groups with two different objectives. And, you know, that kind of dynamic does not always lead to the best outcome. That example of having heterogeneous hardware, and you've got one set of hardware that you train the model on, you've got another set of hardware that you deploy it to, that seems like something that's, you couldn't really solve that with a software platform, right? That's just, you've got disparate hardware What's the solution to fixing the dichotomy between a deployment environment and a testing environment? Training environment, I should say, not testing. Right. I think one tool that can be helpful is the ability to understand at training time to basically have performance models that will enable you to predict on a certain class of hardware that I'm going to predict deploy my model on, what is it going to perform like? And that's not, I would say, a common capability, but that's something that would be a really useful tool to be able to have, would just be that ability to say, at training time, when I'm training a model, you know, it's essentially a multi-objective optimization problem. Yes, I want to have a high degree of model accuracy, but I also want to ensure that my performance on a certain class of hardware fits within this kind of performance window that I have. 
But I think the other kind of piece there is just kind of enabling those different teams that are working together to have that kind of shared vocabulary or shared kind of API interface to be able to say, you know, what does the acceptance criteria look like for a model that we're about to deploy? Because right now, you know, accuracy metric, that's certainly something that is, I think everyone should be on the same page about understanding what the accuracy requirements are. But how you quantify or how you say, okay, what are the additional performance requirements is something that I think, you know, not all teams have figured out. Determined is an AI platform, machine learning platform. That can mean a lot of different things. And we're in a time where there's so much good tooling. A lot of this tooling is disparate. A lot of it may require writing scripts to wire things together or do a lot of work to wire things together to build the right workflows. And I think of a a platform as something that can perhaps smooth out the frictions between different tools. Tell me about what you're trying to accomplish with Determined. What functionality is it serving? Yeah, absolutely. So Determined is an open source, deep learning training platform. So to kind of take a look at those pieces kind of one at a time, we're open source, we're under the Apache license, and we're focused on deep learning. So in particular, the, you know, rather than kind of all of classical machine learning, we're really focused on models that are written in TensorFlow and and PyTorch, typically running on GPUs. And we're a training platform in that our goal really is to enable ML engineers to train better models in less time, to manage their their training hardware resources like GPUs, and to collaborate more effectively with their colleagues. We make it really easy to either do your training on-premise or in the cloud, to work with wherever your existing training data happens to live. And then once you've trained a model, we make it very easy for you to export that model outside of our system to run in an inference, wherever you're doing inference, like a, a serving platform like Selden or on an edge device. So... We, you know, we do try to scope the set of problems that we're tackling by saying, you know, we're only going to do deep learning and we're really focused on training. But really within that scope, we do try to build a really integrated product where all the pieces that we've built work together really naturally. Because I, th- I think that you're right that there are a lot of really interesting tools in the machine learning infrastructure space right now. And it's a space that's changing really quickly. But... I think, you know, as a data scientist who ultimately wants to, you know, do machine learning and and train better models, it's incumbent on you to figure out or you, you or your team to figure out how do I integrate all those tools together? How do I really kind of put together a package that is going to, you know, solve the problems that I actually care about and enable me to, to do better deep learning? which can be a really considerable amount of work just given the number of different tools in the space and the rate at which they're changing. So is it about sane defaults? I think that's a bunch of it because, you know, things like, you know, one example on our platform is that one of the features that we have is around experiment tracking and metrics management. And, you know, we've talked to teams who, who you know, they will give members of their team the, the ability to, to, you know, record metrics in a database or something like that. But if that isn't the default behavior, and if you don't kind of, if you aren't kind of necessarily prescriptive in terms of how models that are trained, how that data should appear in a metrics database, then it's something that is going to see, you know, won't see the kind of adoption that you might want. Whereas in our case, you know, every workload that's trained on our system, we automatically capture all the training and validation metrics, the training logs, those, you know, the hyperparameters. If a model is trained as part of a hyperparameter search, we capture that context. And that's all, you know, automatically linked together kind of out of the box. That's the default behavior that you get rather than saying, hey, like here's the ability to train a model and here's the ability to record metrics about a model. And if you want to use those together, then 
good luck. I think that kind of going that additional extra step and making those pieces work together kind of out of the box, I think that really adds up over time. And can you just tell me about some of the the same defaults or like what the happy path of a workflow for a user who is using determined AI, like what are the set of tools that you're going to be loosely prescriptive around? Yeah. So maybe just to step back a little bit more and talk about kind of the kind of major functionality or, or how the pieces fit together. So I would think of Determined, as we said, a, a training platform. And what we enable you to do is continue to use tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch to write down your model architecture, to write down how, you know, the optimization procedure, what your validation metrics are, and so on. We allow you to continue using the existing training environment that you're comfortable with, so GPUs or what have you. But what we're really trying to do is enable those tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch, which are really sort of single user tools. Those tools are kind of focused on a single researcher training a single model with a single GPU or a small number of GPUs. And we're trying to enable those tools to scale, to scale to larger clusters, larger teams, training many models at once, doing large-scale high-parameter search and large-scale distributed training. So some of that kind of key functionality then is saying, once you write down your model and we you know, port your model to our API, so we have an, an API that is kind of a slight extension of the standard TensorFlow or, or PyTorch APIs. So you do need to go through that adjustment of taking your code and, and modifying to fit our API. But once you've done that, you don't need to change your model to go from training on one GPU to training on many GPUs. If you want to do distributed training, if you want to use many GPUs at once, that's just a configuration setting where you say, hey, I want to use 64 GPUs to train this model. We'll take care of scheduling a task on all 64 GPUs, orchestrating that training operation, doing data parallel synchronous training automatically making that fault tolerant, capturing all the experiment metrics from that workload, and doing that in a multi-user way, where you know you don't necessarily need to think about, or you definitely don't need to think about, well, how do I install a distributed training package? How do I enable my, you know, how do I install MPI to make that training package work? What happens if other people are, are on the cluster and also want to do distributed training? It's just sort of a capability where once you've made that initial investment to move over to our to adapt your model to our API, then the number of GPUs you want to use is just a configuration setting. And why is that so useful? What, what's so tricky about just roll, like doing my own work to set up distributed training? Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where... It's sort of kind of death by a thousand cuts in that, you know, there are great packages for distributed training. Horovod, for example, we use Horovod internally, you know, inside our platform. It's a great piece of software. But as we talked about, there are so many tools in this space and so many different problems that you need to solve as an ML engineer that taking the time to understand install, configure, and continue to operate all the different pieces of software that you need to really put together a full-featured ML platform is just a sizable undertaking by itself. And just doing that work doesn't actually enable you as an ML engineer to to train better models. So if you look at something like Horvod, it solves the distributed training problem in the narrow well, but it you know doesn't solve, well, how do I work with other colleagues on my team who also want to do distributed training? It doesn't solve fault tolerance. When In order to install, you need to f- grapple with stuff like MPI or enabling networking to work between, between the machines you want to do, do distributed training over. So if that was the only kind of tool that you needed to install, I think it would be manageable, but it's more that that's just one of, of a bunch of tools, each of which is sort of special purpose, each of which has to be configured and maintained that adds up to a burden, especially when you consider that this is, you know, 
not directly machine learning, right? This, these are kind of tools to enable machine learning. And so at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of does end up adding a lot of work that's not directly what you're trying to do. You mentioned Horovod, which is a distributed deep learning framework that was developed at Uber, I believe. Yep. How do you use Horovod? Yeah, so we use Horovod internally inside our platform to do distributed training. And as I mentioned, you know, it's not something that as a user you need to directly interact with. You just tell us if, if you want to do distributed training on our system, you just tell us the number of GPUs that you want to use. And we take care of scheduling and orchestrating that workload. And in terms of how parallelizable a deep learning job is, I guess one naively parallelizable task I could see would be if you've got a bunch of hyperparameters that you want to test in a bunch of different configurations, you could have those different hyperparameter training jobs just parallelized. Is that the main use of a distributed training framework? Yeah, so that's a great point in that there are multiple different ways to exploit parallelism when you're training deep learning models. And there's a question of, do you want parallelism within the training of a single model, or do you want to be training many models at once? So, you know, our system supports both. So if you want to do hyperparameter search, you are training many different models, and each model uses a different set of hyperparameters. Those models can be trained in parallel. So that's a very efficient way to exploit parallel resources because each of those training operations is completely independent. There's no kind of synchronization happening between them. So if, if your task is hyperparameter search, then it's it's pretty easy to use parallel resources in an efficient way. Where a tool like Horovod comes in is where you're training a single model or a small number of models on a much larger set of resources. So if I have 32 or, or 128 GPUs and I'm only training one model at a time, by default, that model will only use one GPU to train. So again, if we're doing a hyperparameter search, we want to explore you know, thousands of model configurations. We can train each model with with a single GPU. That'll be very efficient, and we don't need to, you know that's not typically considered distributed training. Whereas if we're training a single model, that model might take might take a week to train to convergence, and we have many of these GPUs available. If that's the bottleneck on you know, the next step that in, in my machine learning workflow, then the more, you know, if we can throw many GPUs at that to train that much more quickly, then, you know, you're able to iterate more quickly. So typically training a single model with multiple GPUs is not going to scale quite as efficiently as using multiple GPUs to train multiple models in parallel, just because that training process is requires a lot of communication between the GPUs if they're coordinated and train a single model. And that's one of the things that Horovod and, and other kind of distributed training systems are trying to do is kind of be very intelligent with how they schedule that communication and how they overlap communication and computation to try to, to try to minimize the amount of communication that's happening and to make that scale better. But I think it is inherently a very communication-intensive problem. So it does take some work and certain models will scale better than others to, in multi-GPU settings. Can we talk a little bit more about that? What would you say, if you, if you had to boil down what parts of machine learning training can be easily parallelized and what parts cannot, can you just, and I know you just described that in some detail, but maybe you could just give an even more simplified explanation for what parts of machine learning training are parallelizable. 
Sure. So within training a single model or kind of higher level, what parts of the kind of machine learning model development process? I would say, yeah, the higher level, like just, you know, you can just run down the different parts. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, kind of really high level when we're doing machine learning, we, you know, typically start with a problem that we want to solve that's cast as a machine learning problem and a data set and typically in some kind of raw format and Typically, we, you know, we need to pre-process the data set or do data augmentation in order to get into a format that's appropriate for to actually train the model on. Then we, the ML engineer typically explores a bunch of model architectures, model hyperparameters, choices of which features to use, and kind of evaluates which of those choices lead to good model performance. And for each of those choices, we, we're going to train a model either partially or, or through to conversions. And then once we have a model that works well, we'll kind of deploy that to production. Or we might do you know, either real-time inference, or we might also do batch inference, where we're rescoring a large data set in an offline way. So if those are the kind of, you know, major kind of steps in the process. Data augmentation typically parallelizes well in most cases, depending on exactly the way you're doing data augmentation, but there's usually a way to, to phrase that in a way that is reasonably easy to parallelize. Hyperparameter search usually does parallelize well, effectively as well. So because each of the hyperparameter configurations is independent of the other configurations, as long as your search algorithm you know, is friendly to parallelism, and the ones that we typically recommend are able to be easily parallelized, then that's something, again, that, that kind of hyperparameter search aspect is something that's easy to parallelize. Then when you get down to training a single model, that is harder to parallelize. It's just because it's a very communication-intensive problem. So you're doing a lot of computation, yes, but the results of that computation in terms of you know the gradient updates for the model itself, those are quite large. They need to be communicated pretty frequently in order to keep the different workers in the computation up to date. So that's something that can definitely be parallelized, but the scaling efficiency that you're going to see there differs depending on the model architecture that you're using. And a common technique that folks will, will apply in order to make training a single model scale better is they'll use a larger batch size. So they'll essentially do more computation before doing that gradient update. So, you know, that does change the actual training algorithm itself, though. So that can actually change the behavior of the model that we're training. So in some cases, training with large batch sizes, so doing a lot of local computation before doing that communication phase, some models that works well. In other cases, though, there might be limits on how large of a batch size you can use, either due to the kind of GPU memory, because larger batch sizes are going to need more GPU memory, or because the model itself doesn't train as effectively with a large batch size. So training itself may or may not parallelize super well, depending on the, the characteristics of the model. As far as the work that needs to be done for resource sharing between different parallel jobs, is that something that you have to write scheduling infrastructure to actually do the resource management yourself? Or can you offload all that work to some pre-written scheduler in order to parallelize if a user is doing some training work within Determined? How much scheduler code have you actually had to write? Yeah, so we've actually built our own job scheduler, and we did that for for a couple of reasons. First, we felt like building a job scheduler that is specialized for deep learning workloads and for 
for scheduling tasks on top of GPUs, we thought that we could just do better scheduling logic. So for example, one of the capabilities that you want if you're doing large-scale hyperparameter search is the ability to explore a large number of hyperparameter configurations on a relatively small number of GPUs. So you have, you know, 32 GPUs, and you want to explore 1,000 or, or 10,000 hyperparameter configurations. You know, the main hyperparameter search algorithm we use inside the product is based on an algorithm called Hyperband, which one of my co-founders was the inventor of. And the intuition there is that you're training many different models for a relatively short period of time, and then looking at those results to decide which models to train further and when which ones, which configurations are, are not performing very well. So you might start by training 10,000 models, but each for a relatively short period of time before you decide which to train further. So that ability to take a large number of models and multiplex them over a much smaller number of GPUs and have efficiently moved them in and out is a you know pretty important capability for us. And that's not something you're necessarily going to get on top of a off-the-shelf batch scheduling system or a kind of, kind of standard container scheduler like something like Kubernetes. So we did make the decision to to build our own scheduler partly for that reason. I think another factor there is honestly that talking to a lot of organizations that are doing deep learning today, a lot of people and this, you know, we started the company three years ago, so I think even more so back then, kind of integrating GPUs into their container orchestration system and their kind of task scheduling system for a lot of companies was still kind of aspirational where they might have had a modern cluster management system, but GPUs were kind of a, you know, kind of experimental or they hadn't quite figured out how they wanted to manage them yet. They hadn't rolled out Kubernetes for, for GPUs, for example. And still today, we talk to a lot of organizations that might use Kubernetes, but they're only starting to think today about how to use Kubernetes to manage GPUs. So that was the other factor was that I think, you know, certainly three years ago, this was true, and it's still true at quite a few places today, is that GPU management is done and GPU scheduling is done in with a you know very kind of simple techniques. You know, one engineer gets one eight GPU box, you know, you might statically partition your GPU box among engineers, or you might have a simple calendar system where users manually reserve GPUs. Those are both kind of techniques that I've seen at, at relatively sophisticated organizations. Rough. <laughs> yeah. And you used to work in Mesosphere. Do you take any lessons from your time at Mesosphere around building scheduler infrastructure? I don't know what you worked on in Mesosphere, but... Yeah, I worked on kind of core Mesos when I was at Mesosphere. It kind of more focused on making Mesos work well for databases and stateful workloads than, than HPC in particular. But, you know, certainly that experience was 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 very relevant to me as, you know, as we started the company and thinking about how we want to do task scheduling. So, yeah, definitely was helpful when we when it came time to build our own job scheduler but you know honestly my you know my initial thinking around you know when we were starting the company and making initial kind of technology choices was to say well you know there's a ton of momentum around kubernetes let's just be Kubernetes only, and let's just assume that everyone's going to have Kubernetes, and then we'll kind of build on top of that. But you know, we started. You know, we spent a while talking to customers, trying to understand what the state of play looked like around deep learning infrastructure and ML platforms at a lot of companies today. And we really found that the level of Kubernetes penetration for GPU and deep learning workloads three years ago was very small. So that kind of meant being Kubernetes only, you know, we decided not to go down that path. I think that's ticked up slightly over the last couple of years, but it's still, I would say, probably something we see in, in a minority of the folks that we talk to that are doing machine learning is kind of doing that on top of Kubernetes, at least at the moment. And the platform is open sourced. So 
why is that relevant? Like when I think about these large kind of platforms for enterprises to adopt, I mean, there's think of these companies like think of Data Robot is one of them, or like Databricks. I think of companies with proprietary, like large proprietary platforms. What's the go-to-market value of having an open-sourced platform? Yeah. So the kind of strategy that we took in terms of getting to the decision to open-source the product was we started by wanting to work really closely with a pretty small group of early adopters. And that's how we spent the first you know, two and a half years of the company is really working closely with companies that were really using deep learning in a serious way and building a product for the, you know, that was a good fit for their use cases and, and kind of iterating based on, on feedback from them. But we also felt like for a lot of company, you know, two things became true. One, the product became mature enough and we felt like it was ready for, for broader adoption. And for, we were excited to kind of share with the broader community of teams doing machine learning, deep learning. But the second is just that I think for a lot of teams today, when they're looking at what their machine learning infrastructure stack is going to look like, most of those pieces are open source. And when you think about kind of developer tools, that's frequently a, a requirement or certainly a very welcome attribute for technology that a company is thinking about really kind of committing to as a core part of their infrastructure stack being open source. I think you know a lot of the folks that we've talked to are really excited about that aspect of the product. And when you look at the overall space of machine learning infrastructure and you're offering something that is somewhat prescriptive, is there anything that falls outside of that prescriptive workflow that you're that you're offering with determined that is like not so easy to plug into, or are there any frictions with the that the user base is uncovered in using determined? I wouldn't say there's like fundamental things that people have tried to do that they haven't been able to do. I would say that it's kind of a continual process of getting feedback from from customers, trying to understand how to make the APIs and the system and the capabilities work more smoothly for the kinds of things people want to do. And, you know, as the saying goes, you know, everything should be possible or whatever the phrase is, everything should be possible and easy things should be easier, you know, but so I, I think it's more been a conversation of, you know, it is possible to run just an arbitrary container inside the system that's attached to a GPU where we you don't get access to a lot of the product's functionality, but you do have that capability to sort of do anything that you want. And then there's a more kind of integrated mode where you can run workloads that fit into our APIs, where you get a lot of this kind of functionality out of the box. And kind of evolving those APIs so that they strike the right balance between expressiveness versus convenience and so on. That's been an evolution. In particular, one thing you know recently that we've been working on is kind of extending the APIs beyond sort of you know, kind of simple supervised models to kind of make it easier to train things like GANs, do reinforcement learning, um, have multiple optimizers, multiple models inside a single model definition, which is you know based on a lot of feedback that we've gotten. From 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 customers, that's something they're excited about. Let's return to the subject of hyperparameter search. So if I'm doing a, a hyperparameter search, that can take a pretty long time. It can consume a lot of resources. Tell me more about when you have been writing the scheduler, how do you manage the trade-off between the potential for better performance if you were to just use more and more resources and the cost of that performance, because obviously GPU time can add up. 
Yeah, I think that's something where we, you know, we try to give users the flexibility to make those kinds of trade-offs at a high level, right? So in an on-premise setting, you have a fixed pool of resources, and we give you tools to make decisions about how to share those resources over the users of the cluster in a pretty flexible way. So by default, we'll fair share the resources in the cluster over all the active workloads in an equally weighted way. So if you have 64 GPUs and you have two hyperparameter searches active, each one by default can use up to 32 GPUs. You can adjust that weighting and you can say, this one's more important, this one's less important. But the other kind of property there is that we're able to elastically scale those workloads up and down. So if one of those searches finishes, or if a user cancels one of the searches because they they're no longer interested in the results, that other search can dynamically and automatically be scaled up to use the entire cluster, to use all 64 GPUs. And similarly, if a third search then joins the cluster, we're able to dynamically adjust those resources down to each one using you know, approximately 21 GPUs. So I think that's one thing that, that, that we give you. In a cloud environment, though, you know, because you don't have a static pool of resources, what the product can do for you is, is kind of automatically provision GPU instances automatically. You can kind of set parameters there in terms of the maximum number of instances you want to provision or what type of instance you want to provision. But that's something that as a user, I think you, know, you can make different kind of cost versus performance trade-offs. But I think that is a, a pretty interesting aspect of the cloud in that if you're doing a large hyperparameter search, you know, we make it very easy for you to spin up you know, 1,000 GPUs all at once, do a very large hyperparameter search completely in parallel, but only use those GPUs for a pretty short period of time. But that's the kind of thing where you know, just building out that tooling to make that process of dynamically using all those, those resources, if you had to do that from scratch, that would be pretty painful. But within the product, it's, it's a pretty straightforward thing to do. Let's run through an example. So paint me a picture of a company that wants to use deep learning for some business case. Let's say they want to do image recognition or segmentation and detect objects in an image. They need to deploy deep learning models for the first time in the company. What are the engineers in this company going to do and how would they use determined potentially? Yeah, so I would say we often see a pretty similar kind of narrative in that, you know, often a company, if they're exploring deep learning, is going to start with a proof of concept. And they want to see some evidence that deep learning can be an effective solution to the problems that they're trying to solve. So maybe you, you kind of use a, a small amount of cloud resources, or you buy a you know, four HGPU box, you kind of dedicate a small team to that, maybe a single engineer or a handful of engineers. And then you try to demonstrate that for the problem that you want to solve, there's some promise there that deep learning can, you know, is leading you in the direction of an effective solution. And then, you know, for that initial kind of POC project, tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch are reasonably good or well-suited in that you're not yet thinking about how do I do deep learning at scale? How do I do it in production? How do I do it over a sustained period of time? But then, you know, once a company kind of sees promising results from, from that initial POC, they start to think about, okay, well, how do we make that next investment to really make deep learning kind of a part of the toolbox and part and something that we can apply to a variety of problems? And that's, I think, where determined really, you know, the sorts of challenges that you face there are, you know, largely outside the scope of tools like TensorFlow and PyTorch and are really kind of what 
are really in the sweet spot for for determined. So questions of, you know, how do I share my GPU cluster among a team of users? How do I apply all of my GPUs to training a single model or to doing hyperparameter searches in a very flexible way? How do I track all my model metrics and metadata? If I've deployed a model to production six months ago and I want to revisit, well, you know, what version of TensorFlow did I use to train that model? What hyperparameters? What training and validation behavior did I see on which data set? will automatically capture all that information for you. Right. Whereas that question of how do I manage my models and how do I track my metrics, during that initial POC phase, something like a spreadsheet is a totally adequate solution to that problem. Right. But once you go from training a single model with a team of one to two to training tens of 20 or 30 models on a team of you know, 5, 10, 15, that's really an area where investing in some process and investing in some tooling is going to, going to be a pretty important thing to do. From a business perspective, what have you found to be difficult around the go-to-market process for Determined? I mean, I think one thing that's been an evolution is just, I think, that striking the right balance between talking to, you know, get, when you're trying to kind of market a very technical product like this to a technical user base in a fairly crowded space, figuring out the right way to describe what makes the product unique, what the value proposition is, has been something that has been an evolution. And, you know, this is an area where different companies are at pretty different stages of their kind of deep learning adoption process. There's certainly plenty of companies talking about AI. Some companies are really far down the path of really adopting it in practice and exploiting it successfully. Other companies are kind of much earlier. So being able to adapt the way you talk about the product and the set of problems to the kind of sophistication of the audience and just kind of being clear about, you know, who the intended user is and the benefits they're going to see is something that, you know, has taken us a little while to figure out. I think that some people have really kind of have kind of gone down that path of really trying to scale deep learning and try to productionize it. And they've seen a bunch of, you know, they've gotten battle scars from some of the issues that arise there. Whereas other people, they're sort of still trying to look around the corner and predict, well, once we go and do that, what issues are we going to run into? And I think, you know, that's two different audiences that you probably want to talk to a little bit differently. All right. Well, just to close off, what do you think are the emergent problems on the horizon that are going to be more acute problems for enterprises that are trying to develop machine learning models, develop a well-rounded process for machine learning development. What's around the corner? Yeah. I mean, one area that we're watching pretty carefully is the hardware space. So I think compared to classical software, deep learning is already pretty interesting from a hardware perspective. You know, anyone building standard software, you're probably pretty content building a development environment around, you know, multi-core CPU. Deep learning Obviously, you need to take advantage of GPUs, but it's basically been, you know, NVIDIA GPUs has been kind of the only interesting training environment for the history of deep learning. There are a lot of companies that are trying to change that and, you know, developing kind of custom chips for doing deep learning training. And those products are starting to come to market now. So I think that'll be a pretty interesting event to see what that looks like and, you know, both the price performance of some of those different offerings but also, you know, what you need to do as a deep learning team to make your training environment kind of hardware agnostic or able to exploit the best kind of class of hardware for your particular model. Because I think it's also, you know, likely to be the case that different kinds of hardware might be more effective at 
you know, training different kinds of models. And it's not necessarily, you know, a one size fits all kind of a situation. So, and, you know, building your ML infrastructure in a way that gives you that kind of hardware portability is something that I, I think is going to be an interesting challenge for the industry in the future. So this is like a wider range of chip types, wider range of, I guess, memory size of machine that you're talking about, like all the configurations? Yeah. I mean, so there's a bunch of startups building deep learning training accelerators, companies like Cerebrus and GraphCore. There's you know, quite a few of them, as well as a bunch of the incumbents and cloud vendors are also building their own kind of custom hardware. Google have TPUs. And then, you know, both a training time and an inference time as well. Kind of custom chips for doing low power, high performance deep learning inference. So I think that's something where being able to to kind of manage that hardware diversity and you know make your training you know give you the capability to move between those different hardware environments is going to be an interesting capability if you have that. It's also something that's going to intersect, I think, interestingly, with questions around cloud portability because you know you can certainly make a choice to say, okay, we're going to double down on going with a certain cloud vendor and a certain kind of limited set of hardware accelerators that are available through that vendor. That will have certain advantages in terms of maybe that stack being more integrated or what have you. But it does mean kind of maybe kind of committing to working well in that environment, but pretty difficult transition story to working on either different cloud or on a different set of hardware accelerators. Cool. All right, Neil. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about Determined and congratulations on all the success. Thanks very much, Jeff. A real pleasure to be on here.